I said to someone in a text, just listen to me. I'm a woman of influence. Um, <laughs> I think why I was nominated is, I want to tell you what allowed me to drive literary arts, what allowed me to drive Mercy Corps, and what allowed me to certainly um, drive college possible. I grew up with a father who taught me there's enough to go around. And it doesn't matter how much you have. If there's enough to go around, you can give something up. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today I talk with Julie Mancini, Executive Director at College Possible and former Executive Director of Literary Arts, where she helped grow Portland Arts and Lecture Series into the largest lecture series in the nation. I was in it after the first three months. A woman came to Portland and wanted something similar to what's in San Francisco called City Arts and Lectures, and she abandoned the project, and so it was handed People think I started it, but was handed to me and a friend, and then my friend went to Seattle to do Seattle Arts and Lectures because of a transfer, not because we needed two sites. But it helped us. What no one remembers is that in 1985, no writers were coming to Portland. They were going to Seattle. They were going to L.A., and we weren't a stop. And so when she did move, it certainly helped us make the invitation for two Pacific Northwest um, cities. And, and that first year, were you, uh, it was 1984 yes. when it was Calvin Trillin and B.D. Norman Mailer and Pauline Kale. Right. And you were... In the audience. In the audience. Yeah. How many times has Calvin Trillin been here? For? <laughs> I was trying to think, because he came back for the 30th, and um, he has a real attachment to the city, so that that's the first time I saw him. I probably produced him probably twice. Um, one for a special event, and then he came back for the 30th anniversary. And what you realize when you're in any community, whether it's radio, whether it's literary, whether it's in education, it's a limited amount of community. Mm -hmm. So um, when we invited Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn, they said no, and on his own, Calvin Trillin called them and said, go out there, it's worth it. Yeah, You know, so even though it was the whole United States and some European writers coming in, they talk to each other. In this uh, 30th anniversary segment that I heard you talk about, you had some pretty funny stories about how you got some of these uh, literary professionals, these authors, these writers to come to town. And a lot of it had to do with persistence. Right. I said to Toni Morrison, why did you come? She goes, because you wouldn't stop asking. (laughs) And who knows? I mean, it's so much different now since I've left. We didn't have email. You know, so we would send these FedEx boxes to get their attention. I remember once hearing from Gary Trudeau, Doonesbury, and he said, you know, I received your letter. And I said, wow, that was eight months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we needed to get their attention. Yes. And so now it's just done with a phone call. Also, when we started, there weren't agents. Mm -hmm. So you went directly to the author. And there was something... um, was something interesting about getting them to agree. I mean, I think the story I told was we invited Philip Roth. He wrote on the top of the envelope uh, the letter that I sent him, I don't do this. And I thought, well, 
that's not a no. Um, <laughs> and so John Gregory Dunn got was in contact with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he said, okay, I've changed my mind because John Gregory Dunn said it was worth it. Also, we had Wallace Stegner um, who wrote to his agent after. This says a lot about Portland. This mm-hmm. says so much more about Portland than it does um, the organization. He said, I went to Portland and I was treated like a rock star. And I'd have to say it was the city that made um, Portland yeah. Arts and Lectures. And that was one of the questions that came to mind um, as I was researching uh, the Portland Arts and Lectures Literary Art Series, is that could this have taken off in any other city as uh, as big as it did, as quickly as it did, as passionate as it did? Because Portland's a literary city. I know others. My um, sister-in-law started one in Rochester, New York. Um, what this did when we inherited it, we had 800 people coming. Mm-hmm. Um, the next year, 2,000 people asked for tickets, and we had 800 seats. Um, and so people thought we were putting it on for our close friends, and we realized it was a hard decision to move to the Schnitz because it totally changed the intimacy of the evening. We went from 800 seats to 2,776 seats, mm-hmm. um, and yet it was becoming too closed because it, it says... Mostly what it says is about Portland embracing the literary um, the literary scene and, and authors. You know, my friend that did it here with me for a year and then went to Seattle, she ultimately moved it up to 2,000 people coming, but it was quick here. It was just, you know, the first year we did it, we sold 800 seats in three days. That's amazing. You know, and that so wasn't my background. I knew nothing about I was given the grace to learn a lot at my kitchen table. I mean, that's that's one thing. I always say I'm not sure I would have had the same opportunities on the East Coast mm-hmm. um, that someone would have handed me a nonprofit right. with my having no nonprofit experience. But I told my the woman I did it with for the first year, I'll do it for three months, and then I need to go find a real job. And 15 years later, <laughs> I finally left. Uh, you mentioned the Gary Trudeau. That I was at that one. Were I, you? Yes, and that one, I laughed so hard. He was so funny. And uh, I was at one of the David Sedaris's one. I couldn't, he's been here a couple yes, of times. Yes, and now other people are bringing, literary arts isn't bringing no. David in anymore. Right, he's come on his own. But I saw him through the series, and that one was a funny one as yeah. well. I'm going back to something you said that, you know, you started off with 18, and then, you know, eventually you were at the Schnitz. How long did it take you to sell out the Schnitz? We sold it out in two weeks. Jeez. You know, I thought, yeah. I mean, I knew what my break-even point was. I knew how many tickets I had to sell. Right. And within two, 85, it, um, 84, 85, it, 86, 87, it was in the First Congregational Church. We moved mm-hmm. to the Schnitz in 88, and 2,776 seats sold <laughs> in two weeks. Was there any ever consideration to move to a bigger venue? No. I, yeah, I the color is too pulled back. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a reason probably the ballet is there and um, Broadway shows are there. But, I, I, you know, I know in the schnitz that when you're in seat M, you're right there. But at the Keller, it's way moved back. And that wouldn't – I was scared of losing the intimacy in 3,000 seats. I couldn't have gone to four comfortably. Right. right. Who have been some of your favorite guests through that series? Well, I go back and forth. I remember the story. I wanted to tell what it was in a, sa- a favorite guest. 
I mean, I did like him personally, but he, someone came and said, I'm going to talk about the future of fiction. And I'm in the back room with one of my colleagues in the symphony space, the symphony um, conductor space. And he's going on and on. And I look at my colleague and I said, what does this have to do with the future of fiction? <laughs> and into the mic, the man said, you're probably wondering what this has to do with the future <laughs> of fiction. I thought, oh, my God, there's a speaker <laughs> in here. And I think it was the ones, the ones that worked most interestingly are when someone came and the audience didn't know who they were. You know, we had what my advice to people starting a lecture series now is the first two years you invite God, you know, and coming on the third year you can start inviting the disciples because they can trust yeah. that you are curating it in a way that they'll find interesting. Mm -hmm. I had recently told the story of um, when Maya Lin came, we were doing a sound check and it was about 20 minutes before the doors opened and she was pregnant and she was in the fetal position on stage. And I thought, well, I really don't know how to work with this. Yeah, um, <laughs> but she got it together for, you know, for her speech. <laughs> and then there's sometimes I would sit in the back room and I, I don't even know if I can identify, I wouldn't identify them, but I'd think I need a new job. I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> but it really what the city gave me the grace to learn how to do it. Yeah. It has morphed into more than just the Portland Arts and Lecture Series. I mean, it became Literary Arts. Mm -hmm. In 93. In 93. And uh, even more than that. So 93, uh, you joined with the Oregon Institute, or they joined with the Oregon Institute of Literary Arts. 1996, Writers in the Schools. I saw some videos on that, and that looks like a pretty it's neat. It's a very stunning program. Yeah. It says a lot about how I managed. I looked at my program person, and I said, Megan, I need you to start Writers in the Schools. I need you to start a residency program, and then I never want to talk to you again. <laughs> uh, just tell me how much money you need. In that, she had the skills to build that program. Yeah. You know, uh, um, We knew we wanted Writers in the Schools, not for a one we had been bringing them in for a one-time thing, and mm -hmm. that it was as good as it was, but it was putting writers into residency for a month to six weeks, mm -hmm. one, employing local writers, and I knew we had turned a corner when a math class asked us to send a poet. That's so, awesome. Yeah. How many schools, uh, are they in all of Portland all Public? all Portland Public Schools, 10. Okay. When do they start uh, joining in with the high schools, and at what level, freshmen or all? Freshmen. Freshman. Yeah. Request of teachers. Okay. And the first year Megan started, great way to start a program. She did it with one teacher and had, you know, six different writers go, you don't start your program with the full program mm -hmm. in bloom. And so it was a teacher at Grant who said, mm -hmm. I'll take writers all year. Um, and then she could branch out to other teachers, then to other schools. Nice. too. But Megan did a great job designing it. Yeah, it seems like <clears> a nice program. And, I, and seeing the students' reactions and their passion for their writing and expressing themselves uh, was a neat thing to see. Poetry in Motion, 1997, on the buses and light rail. And I used to work at TriMet. I worked there for six years. We talked about that a lot, and it was such a neat program to, to be on the bus and see yeah. these uh, pieces of poetry. Uh, and this is before everyone was on their cell phones. Uh, looking so at their true. cell phones, That's so true. Uh, but they would capture your attention or they captured my attention when I was riding on the bus and I thought what a great idea instead of the usual safety stuff to, just to have a moment of, of of contemplation and zen. Someone I 
recently said to someone, Maya Lin said, writing prose is architecture. Writing poetry is like sculpture. Yeah. And so you're, you know, whittling it down. Absolutely. Yeah. Oregon Book Awards author tour in 1998. Tell me about that. Um, we merged with Oregon Institute for Literary Arts in 93, and their main mission was to um, select an Oregon Book Award mm-hmm. winner out of five different categories and to give money to Oregon writers in fellowships. And what we found is we had this huge um, access to some incredible Oregon writers but the evening of the one event, you know, only the winner got on stage. And right. so what we decided to do with, with the s- finalists is to uh, put them on the road and, you know, go to communities that didn't have access to writers coming in. And that has just grown from communities wanting to see us in their hometown, in their library. And that's a statewide. That's a statewide. Yeah, because I saw some of the stops where, you know, Eastern Oregon, Southern Oregon, and I thought, what a great program you know in a bigger city like portland we get spoiled with we do access to Mm -hmm. so many different things growing up in a smaller town you don't have that you don't know that this is a possibility for yourself right as a young uh person and then wordstock is a huge favorite of portlanders i have friends who get so excited when wordstock comes comes around really yes you know that ended with the original company yes and then um the new executive director of literary arts through negotiation, took over um, Wordstock. And I said to him, oh, my God, that gives me a headache. Um, There's a lot of different people to coordinate. Yes. But what it also helped was to help Portland Arts and Lectures, Literary Arts, um, strengthen their relationship with publishers on the East Coast. Right. You know, like if someone big comes out with a new book, um, I want them in Portland. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with Julie Mancini in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with Julie Mancini, executive director at College Possible and former executive director of literary arts, where she helped grow Portland Arts and Lecture Series into the largest lecture series in the nation. I want to talk a little bit about, more about writers in the school because this held my fascination as I was looking at it and, like I said, seeing these videos. You talked about, you know, I want to start this, but you didn't really tell me too much about why this was important to you. Was this your idea or was this something that uh, a bunch of folks at Literary Arts came I'm not up. sure I ever had an idea of my own. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I know is when something works, there was somewhere in America, someone was putting writers in the schools. Mm-hmm. And you have to understand the reason for even the merger for the first seven years, well, from 84 to 93, we were bringing writers from out of, the, out of state, putting them in front of a lectern, and 3,000 people were coming. That was something for the community. But what were we doing for our community. Mm-hmm. So that's why the merger with Oregon Institute for Literary Arts made sense. We would be rewarding um, fellowships and awards. And it just made sense to have writers go into the school for an extended period of time. You are now with College Possible. So I was thinking about this as I was um, reading about you and about Portland Arts and Lectures and writers in the school. Is it 
is this your passion? Is this one of your passions with education and and helping kids discover their possibility? Um, or did it sort of you'll hear about my emotional life. Um, <laughs> in the same way that I knew we had to do something there, I what I have recently been saying, and I've only been in college possible, it's going on three years, I am mission-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, I have tried not to be mission-driven, and I haven't been that successful, I mean, in business <laughs> businesses. The story I always tell is I'm Italian, so I was supposed to be a nun and nursery teacher. I was a teacher for 12 years. And when I decided to have my own kids, I decided not to teach, and I had no idea what I did. You know, I had been in a classroom since I was three years old, right. one way or the other. And so took some really bad jobs and then was handed. That's, that's when I said I wouldn't have had these opportunities on the East Coast. Yeah. And then someone said, would you be willing to take this over? You know, with a background as a preschool right. teacher. And so... I've always needed it to mean something yeah. to get me out of bed in the morning. I mean, I can do other jobs. I'm just right. not that successful. Well, and you were talking about my background being interesting. I mean, preschool education background, and then you go on to Port Lawrence and lecture literary arts and then Mercy Corps and then College Possible. Yes, but all driven by a mission. I right. started a company once called Lyceum. Um, my partner still owns it now and runs it that was making public appearances we, we were the agent for writers to get public appearances. I became mm-hmm. the very person I didn't want to talk to when I started hiring <laughs> writers through agents. Um, and I didn't care. I didn't care. We're bouncing around here, but hope you can humor me a little bit. I'm going to want to go back to Oregon Book Awards and fellowships because my father is a retired teacher, and he's writing books now. And it's not profitable. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, he's retired, so it's more what of a city hobby for him. He's in Wisconsin. Is he still there? Yes. It's cold. It's cold. Well, he is in Arizona half the year. Okay. But he write he writes about his you know family history and my hometown and, and he's a former history teacher, so that's part of his passion. But had he been you know doing this as we were growing up, that you know that's no living to make. Right. And so the fellowships I would imagine offer local artists or local authors rather a chance to either you know, start something or finish it without going broke. Right. And part of it, you know, the money is not as important to them because it's um, sometimes the money c- covers childcare. Mm-hmm. What is important is that someone has judged your work worth supporting. Yeah. That program has been for how many years where the book awards and fellowships have been taking? Since 93, they merged. We 93. Merged. And we're recording this in March, and I think I saw that the next book awards is coming up, yes. and there were some names on there that I recognized, which was uh, kind of neat as well. And so that recognition of these book awards, does it get national sort of attention for these authors? It gets mentioned, but it, it's too provincial to be yeah. widespread nationally. Yeah. You know what it is is, as I say, what you see if you go to the if you're in the audience is writers being acknowledged that the thing they're doing all day is worth it yeah. because judges have judged it as worth it if you're a semifinalist or a finalist and if you're a fellowship winner. As I say, the, the, I think the largest fellowship is $5,000. You know, it doesn't replace a job, but it says, okay, I, yeah. I do have support for what I'm doing. It does help, though. I mean, yes, yeah. it doesn't replace a job, but if you can... Mm-hmm. Uh, have your ch- kids in childcare mm-hmm. while you're finishing up a project. That's huge. Yes. Um, that is huge. Something else that's coming up. Again, we're recording this in March. Uh, this is coming up uh, next month. You are one of the 25 honorees 
I know. Don't give me that look. 15th Annual Women of Influence of 2018. And you weren't supposed to find that. <laughs> you can find everything on the internet. But that's, I mean, you, we just talked about recognition for authors getting these fellowships. It's recognition from your peers and from people outside. This is the same thing. And that I can thank Portland for. You know, when I moved here in 1973, I came for three years, um, and then I was going back east, and I never left because <laughs> Portland allowed me to build a life here. And in many ways, it's a small town. Yes. You know, I always, when a writer got off the plane from Seattle, you could make the difference by Seattle's an ocean port, we're a river port, and it shows that difference. And so my worlds have overlapped continually because you have a mass of people that you've become acquainted with. And I think the reason... <laughs> I said to someone in a text, just listen to me. I'm a woman of influence. Um, <laughs> I think why I was nominated is, I'm going to tell you what allowed me to drive literary arts, what allowed me to drive Mercy Corps, and what allowed me to certainly um, drive College Possible. I grew up with a father who taught me there's enough to go around. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how much you have. If you, there's enough to go around, you can give something up. And it was a town where people made connections with each other. You know, as I say, one of the reasons I was nominated is that that I'll meet with anybody. Um, And part of that that is I love new ideas. I love entrepreneurs. Um, Someone walk into my office and say, I have this idea. There's been times where I think I have to go now. Um, (laughs) But, you know, that's probably in any town. Yeah. But, you know, I was... I joke that when I was a preschool teacher, no politician wanted me to endorse them. But once I became public, <laughs> you know, I'm the same person I was as a preschool teacher. But then it, be- it became a very different canvas for me to work on. Mm-hmm. The Julie Mancini that was the preschool teacher and then the Julie Mancini that has ev- evolved, we've all evolved, uh, and become executive director of College Possible. What do they have in common, and what what are the differences between the two? What they have in common is a wanting to just make things better. Yeah. You know, and so now I was a preschool teacher because I didn't become a nurse and I didn't become a nun. You know, that um, there was very little open <laughs> to me, and yet it seems simple in this world to figure out, okay, this is what I can do for this. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, you know, I was teaching emotionally disturbed kids in South Boston. I feel as strongly about those kids as I do about our college possible kids, Mm -hmm. you know, very different ages. But the thing that drives me, what I say about college possible is it's the easiest story I've ever had to tell. And when I read the job description, I had a visceral reaction. I had a physical reaction to the job description and thought, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And what we watch daily is students making options for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we have set up a model that helps. We have coaches that are AmeriCorps and near peer coaches in, all through junior and senior year. Um, it's not me coaching. It's 22 and 23-year-olds. And our students agree to and come to class for two to four hours a week all through junior year, two to four hours a week in senior year. And from that, 
they have just opened a lot of different options for themselves that probably were not available to their families. Yeah. And if your family hasn't gone through it, it's also something very hard to get guidance on mm-hmm. from someone. Else. You know, most of our kids are have so many barriers to getting to college, but um, they're first generation. And yet someone someone saying, you can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, here's my issue, okay? What, what I think I'm motivated by, my therapeutic issue, is attachment. So whether I, that was the issue I was dealing with with preschools, right. preschoolers, um, I'm convinced the model of college possible is the coach having the students back. Yeah. I mean, we can provide the curriculum. We can provide the SAT books. We can provide all of what you need to be prepared to take the SAT in April. Um, but I just observed two sessions, and those kids knew that their coach had their back. And that's got to be pretty neat, walking into work every day and seeing that. Every time I go to session, I get teary. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be my sort of reaction as well, and seeing these kids open up to the possibility of what is in front of them. I mean, someone asked one of the kids, we were in a senior session with somebody this week, what did you get out of College Possible? And this young woman that was sitting in front of me said, I wouldn't be here without College Possible. There's no way I would have known, one, that I was supposed to go to college, two, how to begin the process of going to college. And we definitely believe it can break the cycle of poverty that Mm -hmm. these kids have been um, in because they will have more tools. More tools than? Their parents. Yeah. How many kids do you reach each year with College Possible? We have 520 students in the high schools. Mm -hmm. We have about 460 of students that are on to college, and we still coach them tech-connected coaching. I mean, that's one of the things of the program, that we coach through junior year to get into college, and then our kids are guaranteed six years of tech-connected coaching. Because there's, there are life tra- uh, transformation, life transitions that happen when you're in college. You are still, I mean, your brain is still growing. You're, you're facing these obstacles that you're away from home. Right. Probably and it's something, home. you know, every year they have to fill out the FAFSA, the federal income thing, to see if they get a Pell Grant. And it's just our coaches being there for them. But also, because our coaches can't know everything about all the campuses our, ki- our students are on, they help direct the students students to the to the resources that are at their you know the college they applied to and enrolled in and are these students now coming back into the community after there are our our first class are juniors in college that's fantastic so give us one more year give you one more year and then my question will be are any of them coming back to help out and to mentor other students we have Someone who graduated from Portland State in three years. Okay. And she has applied to come back as a coach. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's got to make you feel good as you're going home each day, knowing that you've touched somebody. That it worked. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That it worked. I would ask you what you're going to do next, but I have a feeling you're the kind of person when something is put in front of them, you don't necessarily know, have a, have a career plan, but something comes in front of you and all of a sudden you're like, I think if I had, um, that's very kind of you to say what's next, <laughs> because when I left Mercy Corps, everyone thought I was retiring because I'm of that age. Mm-hmm. If I had had to plan my career, I would have been institutionalized because I, I, I wouldn't have known how to do that successfully. You reti- I see you retiring just in, in the short time that we've 
spoken and what I've read about you. And you are a woman of influence, after all. Uh, totally. <laughs> I don't know. I just see you as moving on and, and volunteering and working somewhere with students. Is I mean, that weird it's to a, say? No, it's a strong message for, for me. Um, and it comes from my mom. Yeah. My mom's thing is go in there and make it better. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I could have outgrown that after all these years, um, but it's a very good motivating. It's it's it so makes my life make sense. Well, I'm so happy that you've been a part of Portland that, that you stayed here because it was good to me. Yes, and thank you for coming in and congratulations on Woman of Influence. Now I know. <laughs> A woman of influence. That's really, and I can influence things as I walk out the door. Watch, Could you? Just watch. Yeah. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll direct you to the right people. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with Julie Mancini. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.